Hello and welcome to another episode of Dicalicious Podcast. I'm Casey and very soon you're going to be hearing the voices of my co-host Leah and our special guest Maria, who is also our podcast producer. This episode is the second part of a two-part episode where we are discussing the book No Modernism Without Lesbians. Back in the first episode, we discussed a background introduction to modernism itself and also Briar, who was a very rich, queer, charitable person living in the modernist time. And this episode, we are talking about Natalie Barney and her sexual adventures and Gertrude Stein and her tender buttons. We hope you enjoyed the first episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, I would recommend going back and listening to that first so that you have some context. And at the very end of this episode, you'll hear a little podcast announcement. So listen all the way to the end for that. Because this episode breaks from form a little bit, there isn't any discussion on how gay our days are, unfortunately. So you'll just have to imagine that we're all having the gayest day. Um, but what about you? Like, how gay is your day? What are you up to? What's happening? All right. So Casey chose the story of Natalie Barney to retell. So I guess we'll let you crack on with that. Okay, great. Yes. So we'll start at the beginning. Natalie Barney was born on October 31st, 1876. Which means that actually yesterday was her birthday because we're recording. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Natalie. It also means that she was a Scorpio, which really (laughs) explains a lot, I think. And then she died in 1972 at the age of 96. She lived a very long and healthy life. So what we know from her early years, she had a really difficult relationship with her father, who, similar to Briar's father, was an extremely rich man in America. But she did have a very good relationship with her mom. She adored, like she really adored her mother and they were very close. And her mother was also a very creative person. Her mother went on to become a painter. So the mother and father did have a bit of a, like a rocky relationship. Her father was quite abusive. He was alcoholic and became quite violent on many occasions. So her mother kind of went back and forth between the US and Europe with her two daughters And at some point, she brought them to Paris and put them into a boarding school when the girls were around eight or ten. And this boarding school just happened to be run by a lesbian couple. Um, And this, of course, is where Natalie discovered her love of women. And that school, actually, so it was run by a lesbian couple until this couple broke up and the school had to be... uh, (laughs) it's very interesting that it was a boarding school for lesbians they knew exactly what they were trying to do with that they're like let's put all of the girls together (laughs) and just like see See who (laughs) like someone i don't know like heaven basically for all of the little lesbians that were going incredible the funny thing is that while so while natalie and her sister were in the boarding school her mum got an apartment just down the road so she was always very very close with her daughters and she was always kind of I don't know they they got on really well and after many years of going back and forth between France and the US and between the schooling around the age of 20 
Natalie moved back to Paris more permanently with her mother and sister, but she set up a separate household with her girlfriend of the time, Eva Palmer, and then later had her own apartment. So in the book, there isn't much mention of what Natalie's mother, Alice, actually thought of Natalie's sexuality. But for me, it was quite striking that this woman, age 20, in like 1900-something, was without any issues setting up her own apartment, living by herself in a foreign city. I think, from what I understand, I think Alice Barney just kind of knew what was happening but didn't really make any, like she didn't really seem to have any objections to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like just the fact that she had such a close relationship with her mother who was supportive, it probably contributed a lot to her own confidence 100%. 100%. Um, yeah. Like there are so many there are so many articles about Natalie Barney that just describe her as like unapologetic, living out loud as a lesbian all the time, mm-hmm. bedding as many women as she can, and just like nothing could stop her. And I feel like that probably, it's it just feels like somewhere she came from a very secure place yeah. that allowed this lifestyle. And she never really, she never had to, deal with any kind of internalized homophobia or self-doubt or self-flagellation about about her feelings. So at some point, actually, Natalie wrote a book of poetry about Mm. her lesbian love affairs in French, and her mother, who didn't read French very well, illustrated the book. So each poem was about a different woman. So her mother painted portraits of each woman. But I'll just quote from the book from... Diana Swami. Natalie worked on a collection in French of 35 of her love poems to and about her lovers. In them, she experimented with rhyme verse. We don't care about that. In another room of her house, Alice Barney did pastel portraits to illustrate the book. Her French was very poor. She didn't read the poems, but thought that these friends in Natalie made beautiful models. (laughs) (laughs) That's why she chose them. (laughs) It was very sweet. This is where the thing of Paint me like one of your French girls comes in. Here we go. And so meanwhile, in the background, her father was kind of living his life as well, working, etc. He got quite upset about the book that Natalie and her mother were working on. And I think he came across and like brought every copy and then burnt them. He was very dramatic. What the oh. fuck? Why would you do that? It Such was... hard work has been put into that. Why are we So doing... many beautiful portraits. Yeah, man. <laughs> but... Anyway, after uh, many tumultuous years, her father passed away and left Natalie millions of dollars as her inheritance. And with that funding, she went on to become the leading lesbian of Paris. She used the money to rent an apartment in the 6th arrondissement of Paris, which is also the same area that Sylvia and her bookshop was, Mm -hmm. Sylvia Beach, Shakespeare and Co., as well as other lesbians like Gertrude Stein was there Mm -hmm. and bisexual Colette was around the corner as well. Oh, it's really the place to be. Oh, yeah, it's a hot spot. <laughs> Everybody's within walking distance. It's not quite as gay right now, is it? That area, no. It's The, the landscape has changed a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So the other notable thing about this apartment is that it had a temple in the backyard. Mm. Um, and this is something that we mentioned in our interview with Kirsty Law, that this temple in the backyard was the location of Natalie's weekly salons, which was where she hosted the great creative minds of her time. 
and it also seems to have been the location for the kind of parties where clothing was optional. Um, <laughs> and I think that temple saw a lot of uh, good times. Oh, it sounds like it. So, oh, to be on the fly on the wall. The orgies were on fire. How big was this temple? Well, we should go and have a look maybe, at it. Actually, maybe they maybe they went inside at some point. It might have got cold. It might have been chilly. Oh, <laughs> but in any case, like everything, everything that you read about Natalie, like yes, she wrote poems and she wrote a couple of novels and stuff. But it's they're not really read anymore. She's really just known for being a very she's just known as being a lesbian like she's she spent a lot of time sleeping with women she made it her her life's work like literally there are so many there are so many little stories in this chapter where they're like okay so she went to tea and she she met um i don't know like leanne de Pugy and then leanne went back to natalie's house and left at three the next day 3 a.m the next day and uh could even stay the night Maybe she didn't want to. Maybe she didn't have some fresh underwear or a toothbrush. <laughs> I'm sure Natalie had a fucking stack of new ones. <laughs> all, of the, all of the people that were coming and going. <laughs> yeah, so your kit's just here. Welcome. Um, <laughs> there's a bedroom for you over there, just while I attend to the 18 other people that are waiting for me. Thanks. It's incredible. <laughs> so, of course, with all these lesbians that she's betting, I guess it's easy to deduce that Natalie didn't really believe in monogamy. Mm. And I think probably from today's standards, she would definitely be in a polyamorous relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But only with other women. She was a gold star lesbian. Good on her. This was something that was mentioned quite a lot in the book that I guess even today, like people are not, not everybody is comfortable with open relationship. But if you wanted to be with Natalie, you had to. Like, you had no choice. No option. And she was very upfront about that. But it was a constant source of drama, as you can imagine. Like, women would fall in love with her, sleep with her, and then want more and more and more. And Natalie just didn't, refused. Um, (laughs) She did have, like, a few ongoing long-term relationships. So the first one was Eva Palmer, who went on to become, like, a leading Greek researcher mm-hmm. at the time like she she ended up learning greek so that she could read the poems of sappho oh she was um, devoted as well bloody hell. she was very devoted but then she went on like she moved to lesbos and <laughs> she ended up marrying a man in a like a normal marriage not a lavender marriage anyway so she was the she was the first and then later on there was renee vivian who also came from a very difficult childhood and was also really fucked up to be honest, she had a very she had a very difficult life. Renee Vivian, I think she had a difficult time with Natalie. Natalie was quite was more in love with Renee than I think was the other way around. Mm-hmm. And I think Renee wasn't able to handle the open relationship situation. She was also just struggling with life in general. She died quite young, very sad. And then, so Natalie later on was in a relationship with Lily de Grammo, I think Lily, someone and. They were in an ongoing relationship where Natalie was like, yes, I have other loves, but you're the number one. You are my favorite. No question. Then she met Romaine Brooks and was also saying, Romaine, you're my number one. I love you the most. Nobody else above you. Natalie, you cheeky fuck. 
So Lily was like, obviously, what the fuck? I was here first. And I want, like, if you're going to tell me that I'm number one, I want some proof. So Natalie wrote out a, a relationship contract, kind of like a, kind of like a open marriage contract. She gave her a oh, wow. green ring, but she wrote it like, the thing that I admire about Natalie is, yes, there were a lot of people that didn't understand how to be in an open relationship with her, or they had a hard time with that. Mm-hmm. But Natalie never backed down. She was always very honest and very upfront with everybody. Mm-hmm. And even in this um, relationship contract that she wrote for Lily, she was like, you're my number one. I love you above everybody else, but I don't promise sexual fidelity. It's not on the table. Yeah, I saw something that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so take me as I am and don't leave. Priorities. But there was like, there were always a few little difficult details in the relationship between Natalie and Lily and Natalie and Roman. Like, firstly, Roman did not like Lily. They didn't get along. And she, there were a few times where Natalie was going on holidays with Roman. She was like, okay, so by the way, Lily's coming. And Roman was like, I'm not coming. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> You can't just invite another lover with you on holiday. Like, you get the idea that you're going on holiday with your lover who is with other people, which is fine, but you can't just invite somebody else along (laughs) right at the last minute. I'd be be pissed. Natalie did what Natalie wanted. but So her relationship anniversary with Lily was the same day as Roman's birthday. So they were oh, always no. a little bit of like, <laughs> you called me, for, you said I'm number one. So who's number one on this day? <laughs> oh my Lord. That does make for a lot of drama. drama. So she, she basically just continued her life. She spent some time living in Italy with Romain Brooks. And uh, actually the, the one thing I'll say about Romain is she was a portrait painter. And through Natalie and these Friday afternoons, she met a lot of lesbians in Paris and she ended up creating like, she did a series of portraits of all the lesbians who were, you know, the writers and the musicians mm-hmm. and the artists of the time. And there was some, I can't remember his name, but there was some gay guy that went into his studio and he's like, oh my God, there's all the dykes of Paris are in here. <laughs> so she was quite involved as well. Romain also had a few attachments to natalie's previous lovers as well so okay like yeah a little bit of jealousy but also she's having fun and so while natalie and romaine were in italy this they had kind of moved during the world war ii and they were there when italy became part of the axis became an ally with germany Mm. which made things a little bit difficult especially because so number one they're lesbians and not shy about it. And number two, Natalie's father had Jewish heritage. Mm. So it's not really clear how she handled the situation. There's a few different understandings of what happened. But in order to keep herself safe, she was pushed to write some anti-Semitic articles. But she kind of tried really hard not to get them published. There's a few ideas that maybe she gave up some names of other Jewish people. But there's also stories that she used her American citizenship to help people escape. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it was a difficult time to be living in Europe and to be living as a Jewish lesbian. And she probably did some dodgy things. And obviously the war ended. Her life continued. She ended up... so. While still while in Italy, at the age of like 80 something, she was living in a hotel and she was downstairs on the 
on the beach enjoying the sunshine one day and met a 50 something year old woman who was on holidays with her husband and started a relationship with this lady who ended up moving back to Paris with her and taking care of Natalie while she was Fuck off. Um, while 80. she was 80 how old? 80 something and like she told Romaine about it and Romaine was like okay look be careful love affairs are very difficult at our age <laughs> I don't know huh she seemed to know exactly what she was doing yeah she must Fucking have been man. At 80, so flexible but at 80 something <laughs> she, she got a fair amount of stretching yeah. in while she was young and <laughs> and free fucking hell incredible yeah so this lady took care of her while she while she was sick and up she was with uh, natalie until her death wait so she just left her husband oh uh, yeah of, of course once you meet natalie Barty, you don't look back <laughs> even at 80 odd fuck me all right okay yeah and okay. so uh that was the life of natalie barney wow insane insane so busy she must have had <laughs> so much fucking energy man <laughs> just constant constant serotonin by the sounds of it i mean it sounds incredible i think it's every lesbian's dream <laughs> or maybe i'm just yes. i don't know i feel like it could be a very interesting unforgettable night so <clears throat> i feel like now is a good time to ask what drew you to choose Natalie Barney <laughs> out of all of the people you could have chosen from? For me, I think I think Natalie is so impressive because <laughs> at that time she was living so, like, okay, obviously her sexual exploits were very interesting, but also just the fact that she lived her life so unapologetically. She was so open and out loud about her sexuality. It's like she didn't let anybody else talk shit about her in, like, in terms of her being a lesbian. But also she is another woman person who used her money to encourage the creative arts around her so these friday salons were a collection of the writers and the artists and the musicians at the time and and the lesbians like she brought she was known to bring everybody together and it's like it's really nice it's like it's great to have that kind of community and to have somebody who will host all these parties and yeah and create such a welcoming environment for people. She's one of the she's the inspiration for one of the characters in that book, The Well of Loneliness, by Radcliffe Hall. Radcliffe Hall. Radcliffe describes the character based on Natalie as a lighthouse in a storm. She's strong and she can see her from anywhere. And also like it's also nice. It's like she's the lighthouse of the community. She provides the light. She provides the strength and stability. But also if you get too close, your, your <laughs> ship will be destroyed <laughs> on the cliffs. <laughs> I 100%. Oh, that's such yeah. a nice way to describe somebody, actually. <laughs> Maybe not. They're not they're getting too close, but the rest not of it was very nice. Yeah. Scrap that. You're yeah. shining, but don't get too close. <laughs> Just admire yeah. from a distance. What a lesbian. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Bless her. Yeah. Good old Natalie. So you feel like she did make a contribution to like the lesbian society just in Paris and... I think in that way of Mm -hmm. of bringing people together and giving people the space to be themselves Mm -hmm. and even from the perspective of like if they've come from an unsupportive family, they come to Paris and they see somebody who's just like living her life 
she's got a revolving door of women coming mm-hmm. coming and going but also having people over and like creating these friendships and just saying like it's okay like I don't I don't care if you have a problem with my sexuality mm-hmm. she said at some point like my my sexuality is not a vice it's not something that I need to be ashamed of if you have a problem with it you have a problem with it mm-hmm. and um it, like it's quite impressive who who before Natalie in that time was out loud talking about like fuck you I'm gonna do what I want true or who was even like writing open marriage relationship contracts where did like she didn't use chat GPT to write that she came up with that on her own no true. she I mean she sounds like a very impressive person just to like lead, lead the path I guess for other people that are queer and knowing that you can live with such confidence and such with like no shame at all about the person that you are and just being like Mm. you know what like yes this is part of my life like it don't like it whatever I'm gonna just carry the fuck on with or without you so let me just I've got 15 people waiting for me (laughs) insane it's 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 so fucking cool man she's super cool it's so incredible I would really be curious to know like what her lines were because it feels like she just true. looked at people and the clothes came off. <laughs> it's true. Did actually, she buy them cookies? Did she buy them cookies? Did she? What did she offer them? I don't know. Listen, lads. If I knew that. Come to my place. You know, I've got a temple if you want to come and pray with me. <laughs> wow. What an inspiration to us all. What an absolute Indeed. legend. What a legend. Hmm. I didn't know anything about her. No, me neither. It's quite it's quite funny. When it, somebody noted that the fact that she lived so long almost reduced her legacy a little bit because they put it nicely, but the fact that she lived so long kind of she just lived into obscurity. Yeah. She wasn't really recognized as a, a person to keep an eye on during the second wave of feminism that she would have been alive for. But the second wave of feminism was also very, like, white and straight and not um, not very inclusive. So, yeah, she just slowly dwindled into, well, I mean, not even slowly. She was still, she still had an active sex life at 80-something. Yes. Oh, man, she must have been so good. Could you imagine, Could you imagine? <laughs> She must have been like a fucking the most experienced lesbian. Honestly. The most experienced, honestly. Fucking hell. Yeah. Anyway, wow. What a life. What a lesbian legend. Yeah, now I can understand why you were getting so hot. Um (laughs) I mean just thinking about it, I'm trying to calm myself down and it's It's fucking insane, though. Jesus Christ. Could you imagine? That's incredible. Incredible. I'm so... I don't think I've ever been so envious of somebody in history. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, what a life. Yeah. Anyway, so from Natalie Barney to her actually good friend, Gertrude Stein. Yes, yes. Yeah, they were very good friends, but very different in dating style, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) To say the least, (laughs) yes. So yes, I chose to talk about Gertrude Stein. So she was born on the 3rd of February, 
1874. I don't know what that means in terms of star signs. <laughs> I don't know whether she corresponds to, you know, like the, the stereotype of her star sign. But yeah, so she was yet another person that had a bit of a difficult childhood mm-hmm. because she, so her mom died quite young when Gertrude was quite young and she didn't have this super strong relationship with the dad. So the dad was also very moody. So sometimes she would be super kind to his kids and sometimes like super nasty. And he didn't really take that much care of them in the sense that sometimes, so Gertrude and Leo, who was the sibling that she was closest to, would go wild camping. Mind, this is while they were kids for several days and the dad wouldn't notice that they had disappeared. Okay. So they'd go and then they'd come back and so on and so forth. But then it also meant that Gertrude was like quite free when growing up. I mean, free in a way, but then she was very concerned about like the state of her family because 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 her dad was like so moody and you couldn't quite predict the, the mood that he was going to, going to be in. She was actually super anxious about that. So she talks about kind of, you know, like having panic attacks related to this and... Mm-hmm. You know, just so very difficult childhood, emotionally speaking, let's say. She wasn't super keen on high school (laughs) either. So at one point, kind of, she dropped out, but she still managed to get to the end of it and then go to university where she started studying psychology. Okay. Actually. And it was super cool. I didn't know this because she was being taught by William James, who's Mm -hmm. kind of meant to be, let's say, the father of like modern psychology. She used to get like super good grades and so on and so forth until she realized that she was a lesbian. Oh, oh yeah, it's a hard time. And she <laughs> very hard time for Natalie. So she met this girl called Mick Bookstaver, May Bookstaver, who at the time when Gertrude met her was already in another relationship with another woman. Of course as it happens, because it's not fun if you don't have a love triangle. (laughs) And then, so she really, really liked May, but she wasn't really sure that May liked her back. And then she Mm -hmm. was like, oh, you know, like, when is she going to leave the person that she's currently is with for me? And so she would ask kind of May for like confirmation of her love, like very, very often. And May was like, no, you know, like, I just love you. And, you know, like, you're the one person that really keeps me going and so on and so forth. But this then wouldn't last because then May wouldn't really break up with the person that she was with. So then Gertrude got a bit fed up with this. As you would. Yeah. As you would. And then she was like, you know what? I'm just going to move to Paris instead. Fair fair play. Fair play to her. She was like, I'm just going to clear the air. And she did this because Leo, so the sibling that she was really close to, he had decided to move to Paris for a bit. And she was like, yeah, I'll just move to Paris for a little bit. I'll stay there. You know, like just get my energy back and heal Mm -hmm. from various this this very traumatic relationship and then i'll go back to the us of a spoiler alert this never happened (laughs) (laughs) she stayed in paris until she died in 1946 however the same year when she moved to paris she also finished writing the first her first book let's say Mm -hmm. um which is called qed uh which i think stands for quad air demonstrandum so basically kind of saying that she knew that the relationship that she had with May was doomed from the beginning. Oh. So lesbians being very keen on the red flags from the start, as always. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I basically knew that this was not going to go anywhere. 
Oh yeah, we've all had them. Been there. <laughs> However, it's really interesting because so this book was written in 1903, but it wasn't published until much later on. Mm-hmm. Partly because it was about lesbians. Shocking. So shock horror. We're not going to publish it. But on top of that. The woman that then Gertrude ended up spending most of her life with, so Alice B. Toklas, she got so jealous about, you know, like the whole story with May that she destroyed all the letters that <gasps> May sent to Gertrude. And she was like, you can't do this to me. You know, like, uh, you shouldn't publish this. And oh I mean, you'll see later on that, I don't know, I feel like Alice is mildly toxic. To Mild, put it mildly. mildly. <laughs> uh-huh. um, that's mildly. That's just the image that I got of her but Mm -hmm. you know you're free to disagree as you know like when you listen to the whole story but yeah so QED wasn't actually published until much later on and it's really interesting because so with anything that has to do with publication and Gertrude Stein she had an absolutely shit experience (laughs) so she was trying to kind of write loads of things people were like we don't understand what you're talking about like I'm sorry there were some reviews that were saying that they thought that she was high on hashish while she (laughs) Could have been a possibility. Not possible. While she was kind of writing stuff, some people were like, oh, you know, uh, maybe you're just a crazy person. Oh, bless her. And so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was actually, for one of the poetry collections that she was trying to publish, which was called Tender Buttons, they weren't sure whether Tender Buttons themselves, like whether they referred to the clitoris or to marinated mushrooms. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because those two are pretty much interchangeable (laughs) they're so similar (laughs) i i actually also have that problem sometimes when i go to my fridge and i look for mushrooms and i think that i'm touching (laughs) clits everywhere it's just uh it's tough it's quite confusing it's very confusing if they could just make something to like let you know which one is which you know i mean there is a part of me that in fairness sees with the reviewers we're saying about her because like there is a poem that she writes for Alice uh-huh. and at the end like she talks about you know like how her wife has cows so cows it has become accepted they're meant to symbolize orgasms cows oh really so if a cow can be an orgasm then I can see a tender button being oh. either a clitoris or a marinated mushroom <laughs> yeah maybe she was what? high <laughs> Yeah, so um, very difficult publication history. However, I mean, in terms of like what was going on with her life more specifically, let's say, so she moved to Paris in 1903. Mm-hmm. In 1907, she met Alice. Uh-huh. And it was like the one big kind of true love story that she was kind of waiting for. So that's why I'm saying that she was exactly the opposite of like Natalie Barney. So she wasn't really interested in having like loads of partners and stuff. She was just looking for the one. Okay. And she found the one. Uh So yeah, they pretty much kind of spend all their time together, Alice and Gertrude. So they used to call themselves lovey or baby and Uh pussy. Uh, Pussy. Yeah, pussy. So love different, different time in public. Lovey was Gertrude and Pussy was Alice. <laughs> right. And Alice basically did everything for Gertrude. Mm-hmm. So Gertrude just kind of had to sit there and write. And Alice would cook for her, clean for her, be her proofreader. Mm-hmm. Tried to kind of push her stuff, like with editors and stuff like that. So they kind of 
worked in tandem mm. in a way so like there wasn't one without the other necessarily but yeah so they stayed in Paris and so on and so forth until the first world war broke out and they were like you know what we're just not gonna stay here we're just gonna go to Mallorca <laughs> okay for the yeah yeah so they stayed in Mallorca and then they just came back to Paris you know like when oh, the war was over yeah 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 but I mean, even though they had uh, gone away during the war, they also tried to kind of help with like everything that was like the post-war, like yeah, post-war in terms of like after the First World War mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So they bought a little fort that they converted into a truck. Aww. And like, so they would go around and like give, uh, you know, like food to people or medicines or, and Gertrude would actually use her money. She was quite well off to help people. So again, kind of yet another lesbian. <laughs> Using her money to do good. You don't find wow. it like that anymore, do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was really cool. It was after the First World War, actually, that Gertrude kind of set up this uh, literary salon. Mm-hmm. So even though she was having a very hard time being published, uh-huh. <laughs> loads of writers kind of, they started seeing her as like, you know, like someone that you absolutely had to be friends with because Mm. otherwise you probably wouldn't be published if you didn't have her approval and she made the career of like you know Ernest Hemingway for instance Mm. or Francis Scott Fitzgerald and she was friends with T.S. Eliot and so on and so forth one thing though that angered me Uh so much about these salons is that she was fine with like dealing with men mostly Mm. But she didn't really deal with women all that much. So she had friends. Yeah. But, and this is where the good old Alice B comes back. Because Alice was so jealous. Yeah. Then she, she, Alice, would keep kind of women at a distance because they were like, God forbid, you know, that one of them kind of gets closer to Gertrude. And the one thing that she used to do that drove me up the walls was that you know like as soon as like there was a, a woman writer an artist or whatever she would be like oh you know like no you, you don't need to talk to Gertrude right now Gertrude doesn't have time come with me to the kitchen so oh. and it's horrible because what it's almost fuck? like kind of saying the place of women is in the kitchen so even though you're in a lesbian relationship even though technically you should be kind of outside of like this very patriarchal yeah kind of setup of a relationship and of a life and whatever else then you still take women to the kitchen I thought she was taken out to the kitchen for something else, to be honest. Um, (laughs) So I'm glad, I'm really glad that you clarified. No, 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 no. Uh, She just wanted to kind of get them away from 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 Gertrude. Gertrude. Yeah, yeah. And Gertrude would never be found in the kitchen, God forbid. No, 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 no. But yeah, so there was a lot of that. And yeah, but so very difficult kind of publishing history for Gertrude, but very kind of profitable art collector business let's mm-hmm. say so she was one of the people that again giving the money to the modernist community she invested a lot of her money in modernist paintings so she was mm-hmm. very good friends with Picasso oh, yeah. and she got a lot of his paintings and her whole house was full of like paintings by Cézanne, Gauguin, Renoir, Matisse and so on and so forth shame however that she managed to rub them the wrong way some of them some mm-hmm. of these painters when she actually published the one very, very successful book, the first successful book that she published, which was the autobiography of Alice Bitoclus. Uh-huh. So it's like it's an autobiography narrated from the point of view of Alice. Yeah. So again, kind of this very symbiotic relationship. Yeah. You know, very lesbian. Very strange. Uh, <laughs> and she was saying that, like, apparently she 
made use of like this stance that was like not her own, but it was Alice's at the at the beginning, to kind of say some things that probably she wouldn't have dared to say. Uh huh. And because it was very often kind of these comments were directed at men, like these men were like, "Oh no, like you can't you can't say this, like you really can't say this." Mm. For instance, there was like Matisse that took. Matisse or Suzanne, I can remember. But one of them was just like, oh, you know, like you made like a very shitty comment about my wife. Like uh-huh. my wife is very beautiful. Like it's really not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like she has, she's she's perfectly nice and so on and so forth. Like I don't know what you're on about. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, if you read the stuff about her, she's very, very, you know, like it happens very often that she burns bridges with people. Mm. So she was pally pally with Hemingway and then they fell out. Uh, it was the same with like all these painters and stuff. A lot of her lesbian friends as well. It was the same th- thing for them, although it's unclear whether it's Alice's fault or Gertrude's yeah. fault. Yeah. Maybe just the oh, two books. of them just together oh, just caused this like, they kind of gave the vibes, get away from us. Yeah. Like they were all lesbian hobbits. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could I could see them as hobbits actually. Yeah, that would um, make a lot of sense. In in fairness, in fairness, I mean, I don't know why this t- for me relates to hobbits. Gertrude Stein was definitely a sort of Birkenstock and socks kind of lesbian. I can imagine that. <laughs> so yeah, actually, one of the insults that was directed to her at one point was that she was besandled. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Gertrude. But yeah, so like all of this happened and she managed to get fame at six years, six year old. Wow. When she published this autobiography and then not that long after the Second World War mm-hmm. broke out and they couldn't really, with Alice, they couldn't really escape Paris this time. However, one of the things that Gertrude managed to do kind of close to the war was put out an opera. Okay. So she was very good friends with Virgil Thompson, who used to write music and so on and so forth. So they came up with two operas. One was Four Saints in Three Acts. And the other one was Mother of Us All. And they're still performed today. And from what I read about them, they're the queerest experiences ever that you could oh, see wow. on stage. With the uh, Four Saints in Three Eyes, they had an all-black cast wow. as well. And they had the first African-American director like it, on, on stage. Wow. like Cool. Ever. And it was super, super cool. And they had like these magnificent kind of sets they had a donkey on stage at one point it was fantastic they went to broadway and so on and so forth so it was like just a magical experience and it's one thing that i personally appreciated about gertrude because while kind of obviously the war was going on or Mm -hmm. you know like you could see that like there was fascism in in europe and everything else so no acceptance whatsoever they did work a lot in terms Mm -hmm. of acceptance Mm -hmm. of you know like everyone but yeah she was she was well cool Sadly, kind of towards the end of the war, so in 1945, she started seeing that she was not that well. And it turned out that she had cancer. And even though, like, it was quite late, Mm. kind of in the development of the disease, then she still decided to try and get operated. It didn't get her very far, but uh, hey-ho. And then after she died, actually, Alice B kind of tried to keep the paintings, all the paintings that she had acquired for as long mm. as she could, which was 21 years yeah. after, oh, wow. after Gertrude died. Yeah. And because they couldn't afford insurance on the paintings, oh. but they wanted to keep all of them. So basically, Alice kind of tried to kind of le- live as frugally as she could so that she could keep all the oh, paintings. She was her. like, I don't really want to give them away. She sounds so <laughs> sweet. Alice is such a babe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean... 
Yeah, in some respects. In, in some yeah. respects. In some respects. Yeah. Yes. And yes. Wow. But yeah. So there we go. Interesting. There was a story that I read when I was reading about Natalie that she used to Natalie and Gertrude when they were friends. Indeed, when they were friends. When they were friends, they would go for daily walks with Gertrude's dog and basket. Basket. But at some point, sadly, Basket passed away. So Gertrude got exactly the same <laughs> dog and gave it the same name. No. It, just, it just carried on. Did no. you know, actually, to be super extra relating to Basket, when she actually finally got famous and she got a lot of money, she used to buy kind of the collars and like the little coats for the dog from Hermes. Oh, my God. So like proper designer dog. <laughs> what a character. Yeah. I mean... So very, very strange character. Yeah. Have you read any of her books or her writings? I have attempted to read Tender Buttons slash Clits slash Marination Mushrooms <laughs> because it was part of my course at university. And I remember I was like, what the fuck? But yeah, also because I don't know whether you've tried to kind of read anything by her, but it's so repetitive. It's so repetitive. And there was actually, so because she was so repetitive, there was one of the editors mm-hmm. that got in touch with her that wrote the rejection yeah. in exactly the same style as her. <laughs> and he wrote, so he was like, I have the passage here, but he says, Dear Madam, I am only one, only one, only one, only one being one at the same time. Not two, oh, not oh. three, only one. <laughs> and then so he keeps on going, keeps on going. And then what does he say? Ah, yeah, being only one, having only one pair of eyes, having only one time, having only one life. I cannot read your manuscript three or four times, not even one time. Only one look. Only one look is enough. Hardly one copy of itself. Yeah, hardly one. Hardly one. It's hardly. quite clever, to be honest. <laughs> it's pretty clever. It's pretty sassy. But it, it really does summarize the experience of reading a Gertrude's style. Yeah. Piece of writing. <laughs> I tried to read the autobiography of Alice Butoklis and it was a lot of name dropping. At some point I was just like, okay, like what's the story here? But also I just couldn't finish it because I was so annoyed by the fact that she was writing an autobiography of somebody else and it just felt too, I don't know, controlling. I don't like yeah. the symbiotic nature of their like I don't like the the way that they're so entwined in each other's lives. I find it very creepy. But that's just my personal opinion. No, I agree. What was it that drew you to Gertrude in particular? I mean, it was partly because we did talk about her when I was still kind of doing my BA, so like the equivalent of like a licence here. But I never really kind of looked into like, you know, like who she was, what she wrote and that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff, partly because I didn't have much time. But I always remembered her as like finally a lesbian on the curriculum you know, wow. like, I must, I must, I simply must. And then so when kind of there was the possibility to talk about her, like, because it was related to the, the Swami book, I was like, yeah, 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 you know, like, it has to be her. The only thing was, like, I had a bit of a a bit of a disappointment when it came to Gertrude because, like, one other of my very favorite writers of all times, Juna Barnes, had a very bad experience when she went to Gertrude's kind of literary salon because... Gertrude didn't really comment on anything that she wrote. She just mm. said that she had very beautiful legs. Gertrude. That's disappointing. Yes, I was just like, I don't know, so disruptive in everything she wrote. And then, yeah. and yet, like, so conventional in everything yeah. else, like, Baroque, the, the, the touch of lesbianism. Yeah. So what do you think Gertrude's impact on society was or is? 
I think just very similarly to like Natalie Barney and Briar to one extent, just kind of creating the possibility of supporting modernism mm. just like just in general i'd say that she was less on like the side of lesbians so not not the mm. same as like say for instance by was or like especially natalie barney was i think that it was like a more yeah. of a general thing mm. with her but i think that like definitely when it came to like supporting artists and stuff like that like she was one of those people that like could see something that everybody else could not see especially like in terms of art and stuff like that and then you know like when a lot of picasso's paintings or matisse's painting mm. you know they loads of Critics were like, oh, this is shit, this is horrible, whatever. Mm. And she was like, nah, and I shall buy it. For a very cheap price. <laughs> On top of that. Yeah. But she did, she had like so many paintings. She did quite well for herself. Yeah. One thing that just confuses me a little bit and I have to like, I, so I've just been trying to take everything in because I don't know very much about Gertrude Stein or I didn't before this. Mm-hmm. If her writing was so bad, mm-hmm. how did she... Like you, you mentioned at one point the fact that like people couldn't get their stuff published unless they were friends with her. Mm-hmm. But if her writing was so bad, then why did publishers? Try- I think that like with many other things, just because her writing wasn't understood, it didn't mean that like she couldn't see you know like novelty in other people's kind of mm-hmm. writings or paintings or art just in general. So I think that that's that that was why kind of loads of people came to her and she was also you know like because she had like such powerful friends like in mm. in Paris as well I think that's like that's also partly why people gravitated towards her but she did you know like because she was connected for instance with Hemingway or Fitzgerald or and she had very good PR by yeah. I mean partly because Alice was really good with like anything that was like PR related but she was also good friends with T.S. Eliot okay. which is you know just a big thing <laughs> And he was the one actually who kind of started saying, you know, like, she's amazing. She's fantastic. Look at how she's writing and stuff like that. So mm. I think that it was like almost like word of mouth in the end, just the fact that, you know, even though like she didn't have like the most kind of glittering publishing history, she was still like, you know, important in terms of like, if, oh, if nothing else, yeah. literary advice. It does make you think like those names that you mentioned, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, they are held up as incredible writers that we still study today yeah yeah like can you just imagine the impact she would have had if she'd been allowed to talk to the women and not look at just their legs like yeah yeah I yeah. personally I actually have never heard of Juno Barnes before shame. and it's such a shame like it's it's such a shame that the sexism leaked into even this lesbian salon yeah lesbian salon like you can't get rid of it yeah yeah and I think I don't know, like thinking again about like why Gertrude Stein couldn't get published. I think also that the fact that she was a lesbian specifically and she was trying like a lot more than maybe other people to kind of get Mm. her stuff published. And loads of people were just like, nah, you're a lesbian or you're talking about lesbians. So (laughs) we won't publish any of this. Now you're fucking dying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there were loads of people that were just like, you know, like there's a lot of lesbian action here. uh, Loads of lesbian vibes. Like we can't, we can't take it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can like I can understand from that perspective in terms of if they wanted something profitable, it would have been yeah, difficult. Yeah. Radcliffe Hall had to publish their book independently and they had to ask Sylvia Beach to secretly sell copies. Yeah, yeah. And it got like that got that turned into a huge court case yeah, because yeah. they wanted to ban the book. It's quite funny though, like I haven't I haven't read it. I don't know if you have The Well of Loneliness. I haven't. But everybody described it as like the most depressing lesbian book ever written. 
even Virginia Woolf at some point was like, I don't know how those judges read the book. I couldn't keep my eyes on the page. I was so bored. <laughs> oh, no. But apparently because I was reading about kind of the world of loneliness and people kind of, you know, like say like lesbian chef d'oeuvre or whatever. And the only two sentences that are in there, you know, like it's just like something about a kiss mm. and the fact that like these two ladies like spent the night undivided. Mm. And that's ah, it. Yeah. That's mm. where it stops. So imagine, imagine, you know. Just you spark the imagination and off you go. Imagine if they read Sarah Waters nowadays. Ah. Incredible. But even like, even if their books weren't allowed to be published, the letters that these lesbians wrote to each other, not just the three that we've mentioned, <laughs> but they were very specific. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know Natalie got a lot of letters of like, what you did to me at three in the morning last night. Wow. <laughs> That's just when the other one was going home. <laughs> Beautiful. Incredible. Wow. What an experience. Yeah, what an experience. What a wonderful, wonderful experience that we've all had this afternoon learning all about these incredible lesbians. Yeah, it's like we said at the top, it's kind of, I find it really exciting to read a book like this and to see how active the scene was yeah. so many years ago. And yeah, 100%. it's the history that you don't usually hear about. And it just sounds like it was such an incredible time yeah. to be living in Paris. It did make me like reignite my love of my, like the, the fact that I'm happy to be here living in Paris. Mm -hmm. walking. In the yeah, history. actually it, it, it made me, um, I mean, since I read it while I, obviously while I'm in India, it's now I'm really excited to go back to Paris mm. and be like, oh, <laughs> What are these lesbian moments? And it was also obviously I want to see the temple. That's a must do. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's really it's kind of inspiring to say, like just the fact that these people were in a time where it was very illegal in pretty much every fucking country. Mm. It was very looked down upon and it was that's if it was even known about, mm. you know. And so the fact that these women that there were so many of these women that were just like fuck that mm. this is who we are i'm gonna live like this because do you know what i want to be happy and that's what's gonna make me happy mm -hmm. so it's just so nice to see that and to think that fuck you know like fuck what, what other people think and what other people want to say or whatever yeah so it's just super nice yeah i think you also feel a lot less lonely in yeah. terms of you know, like, yeah. it's not just like something that happens now, like, and it's, you know, like when people kind of make the argument off, you know, like, oh, it's just because, you know, like, say now we're in a more tolerant kind of society and stuff mm. like that, that that's mm. why kind of you have like all these books right now mm. about being queer and stuff like that. I'm just like, no, actually, yeah, it's always been that yeah. way. It's just that they were suppressed. Yeah. So I think that like, from the point of view of like, just history, like historically, you feel a lot less lonely. Yeah. 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 I think also just like it kind of heightens the sense of how important a community is. Absolutely. You know, like, I mean, there was a reason that they were all here or that they were all in Paris because that is where the community was. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And who knows, you know, like if a few of them weren't quite as open about themselves as they were, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Mm. So like one tiny little thing that would cause a blip in the community mm. could have destroyed the entire thing. Mm. And then we would have been set years, you know, behind mm. i don't know maybe that's a bit of a depressing way to think about it no but i guess like from a, a more positive side maybe you know like you just keep the community's memory alive like with something like mm. this like you yeah. know like talking about people that maybe you wouldn't have come across unless you know like someone like 
Swami had actually gone out there and like done all her research and yeah it's like it's quite a positive experience yeah 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 really nice yeah. beautiful beautiful yeah. wait for this guy yeah very informative yeah. <laughs> okay so leah imagine that you're at a modern day lesbian salon and uh mm. you see a lady that you'd like to connect with do you have a pickup line with her for her uh i do so i would look very lovingly into her eyes grab her hand and say are you a bookmark because i keep rereading the pages that you're on oh, wow. <laughs> <This is> so <laughs> you don't like it you don't like it it's not i was waiting for the um sexual undertones yeah there's no do you know what <laughs> don't always have to be a very sexual person you know i'm trying to cut that down all right we're seeing a new side of you i think i've got a bit of a problem to get in. <laughs> i'm just I'm just trying to put a bit of distance there i don't want to be like the modern day natalie barney i would actually i would i would 100%. um 100 but i do i do like your bookmark one it's very romantic I mean, that's how they used to do it in the day. I'm sure that <laughs> Natalie Barney would have been way more romantic than sexual because the sexual stuff would happen afterwards. I don't know. Anyway. She was very... She'd probably just probably... go up to people and be like, Casey, let's fuck. <laughs> Come to my temple. <laughs> and that's that. Probably. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, thank you everybody for listening to us. If you have any thoughts or feelings that you'd like to share with us, please feel free to send us a little message on Instagram. Then our Instagram handle is Dicalicious Podcast. Or if you prefer to send us a cheeky little email, then it's dicalicious.podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, if you want to maybe give us a nice cheeky five-star review as well we'd we'd love that and that's it stay strong lesbians that's it stay strong and go and read the book no modernism without lesbians yes the best read the best read it's a very good read so thank you very much and a big thank you of course to maria yes thank you so much for joining us thank you very much we've had a lovely experience with you yeah (laughs) yeah go for it lesbians Okay, so this was the final episode of Dicalicious Season 2. I know, a very sad moment. However, you can continue to listen to us when we come back. And if you get bored and you miss us too much, you can go ahead and check all of the other episodes out because there's many of them. Tell your friends, tell your mum, tell your uncle, tell everybody. We are happy to have listeners and to provide information on how it is to be queer and a woman in today's society. Take care and we'll see you soon. Take it off.